M A I N M U M U Main Menu Main Menu Main Menu Welcome to Main Menu for September 19th, 2009. I'm Jamie Pauls. This week, we visit with Anna Dresner about iTunes 9 and her experiences using VoiceOver on the Mac. Finally, we hear part 5 of our Windowize scripting class. That's all coming up on this edition of Main Menu. We're visiting this week again with Anna Dresner, um, who we talked to last time about her new book, uh, The Accessible iPod. And we talked about iTunes, and as usual, iTunes continues to evolve. So, uh, Anna, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about iTunes 9? Well, um, iTunes 9, as you probably know, came out um, this past Wednesday, the 9th, and it... They, they seem to have broken a fair amount. Um, there's really no way to be to beat around the bush here. Um, the um, iTunes store, I guess you could buy tracks and um, albums if you want to just sort of tab through and push buttons, but the uh, browser that would actually allow you to read reviews and that sort of thing is broken. Um, I mean, it's just... I, I th- One time when I moved to that area, um, I heard... Uh, my, uh, I heard Jaws say virtual, uh, virtual PC cursor, but it couldn't actually go anywhere. Mm. Um, they also did not fix any of the things uh, with the focus issues that were introduced in iTunes 8.2, where if you um, have a list of podcasts and you expand the list of episodes and then arrow down, you have to hit tab and then shift tab to bring focus to the actual episodes. Yeah. Um, and the radio stations, same way. So, you know, they're usable. The uh, rest of iTunes seems to be fairly usable. I added something to a playlist and put that playlist on a shuffle. But, um, you know, it's the, but the store has real problems. Um, and also I noticed some of the information didn't seem to be there. Like when I was playing a track and paused it um, and went to the, um, the status area, mm-hmm. it showed the song and the artist but not the elapsed time or remaining time. Mm. That is most unfortunate, yeah. Yeah, um, and it's also just interesting. I mean, I I have a uh, Mac, and so I've been playing around with iTunes on the Mac, and there are also focus issues there, and um, the iTunes store, while it's certainly better than Windows, you can still read product reviews and that sort of thing, but instead of um, just a list of songs for, like if you click on an album, um, you get what's supposed to be a table, but I can't figure out any reasonable way of moving through that table and previewing songs and, you know, really buying individual tracks. Um, you know, maybe if I just started tabbing through, but in terms of like, you know, rational navigation of a table, uh, you know, that doesn't seem to be working. And there are focus issues in like in the playlist browser, which, oh, it's been renamed to something. I can't remember what now. The column browser, I think it is called now. Mm. Um, so they really, you know, while, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because on the same day they added uh, some major accessibility improvements to the iPhone, as I understand it. Yeah. So it's like they're, get, yeah, and, and they released the iPod Touch that has um, voice 
Yeah, that that speaks with voiceover right. um, and their new iPod Nano, which of course the Nanos have been their most popular iPod, and it has voiceover. Um, so, yeah, it's really kind of funny the way they seem to be adding accessibility on the one hand and doing some really exciting things, and then on the other breaking accessibility in iTunes, which, of course, you need for all that other stuff to work. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, I think I've asked you this before. Do you, do you currently have connections with pe- you know, some of the accessibility people, or um, are you kind of like the rest of us? You just kind of have to send an email and hope someone reads it? And Yeah, I'm basically in that category. I mean, I, in terms of you know the development of JTunes, I mean, I, I know Brian Hartgen, sure. so... Absolutely. I'll find out stuff like that. But in terms of accessibility at, at um, Apple, no, I will say I haven't written to them yet because I've been trying to sort of get a good sense of what the issues are before I write my note because I don't want to just, you know, complain about something that it really I just didn't know something right. to make it work. You know, I want to send in a, a com- you know comments that are meaningful. Um, I will say that in the past – you know, when I have written to them, I have gotten responses usually pretty quickly from somebody who seemed to know what I was talking about. So I've had pretty good luck writing to accessibility at apple.com. Um, but I would certainly suggest um, that anybody, um, you know, when you find, you know, things that aren't working, especially if you know that other people are having the same problem, I would definitely suggest writing to that address um, because um, I know that real people do read those and, you know, if they hear, and the more people they hear from, and I think, you know, as long, especially if you're doing it in a polite, constructive kind of manner, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think, that, I think that they really are willing to listen, and hopefully if enough people write in, you know, they'll realize that this really is important. And that is accessibility at apple.com, right? Yeah. Have you had a chance to play with any of the new iPods yet? No. Um, I, you know, I may get to at some point in the process of trying to update my uh, book, but sure. certainly not at this point. Right. So it would be interesting to see, you know, what kind of feedback you get with thing, you know, with the, the radio and the pedometer and the, and even the video camera, um, you know, if, yeah. if the person can hold it in the right general direction and get something that's, uh, that, that, you know, is reasonable video, that could be kind of fun too. True. Exactly. So how long have you had a Mac now? Uh, since June. Okay. Now, what are your um, your initial impressions about that? Um, I'm pretty impressed. Um, especially, I think Snow Leopard has made uh, have, has made a real difference. Um, certainly, Safari in particular um, works much better under Snow Leopard than under Leopard. Um, yeah, and I mean it's kind of neat having the the screen reader be part of the operating system so that. Uh, when there's an update, you, you're gonna you don't have to worry about you know, will the screen reader work with it and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so and and of course you know if if voiceover crashes, it just really reloads itself, which is nice. So you're not left hanging. Yeah, occasionally, I've had a situation where it just stopped talking for some reason, and I didn't get speech back, and I had to kind of flip it off and on a few times. But for the most part. You know, it, I've had it, and so I mean that's kind of nice. Sure. Um, I'm also running Windows on there, and um, it's kind of neat to be able to have both operating systems on the same computer and do what works uh, well in each one. Now, are you using Boot Camp or are you using Fusion to run Windows? I'm using Fusion. Yeah, and 
I'm kind of curious about the memory constraints. I mean, are, are you are you finding that you're able to allocate enough memory to make Windows run smoothly? Reasonably. It's kind of funny. I have a, a Mac Mini with two gigs. Okay. And um, when I first start running Fusion, it seems like everything on the machine runs slowly for a couple minutes. And then it all kind of evens out and for the most part is fine unless McAfee is scanning or something, oh, yeah. which uh, <laughs> just <laughs> seems to always be a drain. I'm going to have to replace that. But anyway, that's another story. But then it's it's like, they, like all the different programs, the way it feels, and I have no idea technically what's happening. The way it feels is they're all kind of going, oh, well, we have this amount of space now and they kind of rearrange themselves and then it works. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. Because after the first couple minutes, then usually everything is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. But I haven't tried to do anything really intensive like um, scanning with Kurzweil yet. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how that works. That will, yeah. But I've definitely had four or five programs running on the Mac side and a couple programs running on the Windows side and had it all you know, work pretty smoothly. I assume that the responsiveness of VoiceOver is quite good since it is built into the operating system. Generally speaking, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, something like you know, reading email and stuff most of the time is really good. There were a few bugs introduced in the, in the Snow Leopard upgrade, um, and I think some of those were resolved by an update last night. So at least they got a bug fix out pretty fast. Is there anything else that we need to cover before we let you go? I think just that um, I do intend to do an updated version of Accessible iPod, um, but I am kind of holding off to see what happens with iTunes and accessibility and all of that, um, you know, until we have something a little more stable. So there will be one. It just may be a little while. And if you, unless you're buying one of the new iPods, I would just recommend staying with whatever version of iTunes 8 you have because if you do update, then rolling it back and getting your library to work and all that isn't very, isn't all that easy. So, um, you know, unless you're buying a new one, stick with the, um, version of iTunes that you have and you know hopefully there will be some good news before too long but I don't know when that will be since my interview with Anna GW Micro have posted on their blog that they have been in discussion with Apple and Apple has stated that there will be an update for iTunes in the not too distant future that should address many of these accessibility concerns also Serotech is announcing that System Access works much better with iTunes 9 in its latest release. Our thanks to Anna Dresner for appearing on this week's edition of Main Menu. Also, be aware that in the not-too-distant future, we will be having a review of the iPod Touch, so be looking for that to come shortly. Finally, on this week's edition of Main Menu, we're going to air Part 5 of the Windowize scripting class that we have been airing for the last several weeks. And we're going to back up a little bit and catch part of what we heard last week. And then we're going to take you to the end of this presentation. Our thanks to GW Micro for allowing us to air this scripting class on Main Menu. Back in the editor. The first line just defines a variable called myXML. And in, um, in VBScript, you can use dim to define the variable. I didn't have to do that, but it's probably good programming to do that. I need to get more in the habit of doing that myself. And then I, def- I set that variable equal to, and you'll see I'm setting it to client information dot script path. 
Because that, remember before, you were setting things. You did like client information dot version equals blah. Well, script path actually is a read-only property that tells me the path that my script was run from. Windowize fills that in with the path. So that way I get the path of where my script is, and I just did an ampersand to concatenate, and then in quotes, backslash, because the path doesn't have an ending backslash, control panel 3.xml. My XML file has some strings in it that I want to use. It doesn't have a dialog in it yet. This version doesn't have a dialog, but it has strings that I want to use. And you might say, well, why do you need strings in an XML? The main reason is, is that you keep all the strings away from the code in an XML file that the user can easily localize to something else. So even if I encrypted this script, all my strings could be in an unencrypted XML file that a user could easily localize to another language and keep my code encrypted to where nobody can see it. So that's the beauty of keeping all of your strings. And if you just want to change something, it's nice to go in the one file and change it and not have to find it in the code and tweak it and all that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll look at the XML file in a bit, but that's all I'm doing there. And the next line, again, defines a variable called myStrings and does a set myStrings equals strings, which is a method of application, and then gives it in parentheses the variable that I define to the path of my XML. Strings is a windowized application method that takes an XML path, the path name of an XML file, it goes off to that XML file and loads all the strings into the variable myStrings. And that's a dictionary object, I think, isn't it, at that point? It returns it back as a dictionary object, which is a standard com thing that, that everybody has. Um, so now my strings is a dictionary object of all my strings that can be localized. And the beauty of this is, I won't go into all detail, but Windowize figures out what language it should find. So my XML might have 20 languages in it. Windowize will find the correct language based on some heuristics and some ordering that the script author could provide to tell it what language to actually select. And that's the strings my script's going to be using. So a guy in Poland could load your script, and boom, he's going to see Polish strings. A guy in the U.S. is going to run it, and he's going to see English strings. Just all automatic, just happens. So then we go down to the next three lines on lines four, five, and six are just setting those three client information lines that we already done, so you've already known those. But notice how I did it this time. I said client information dot script version equals my strings, which is the variable I got back from the strings method. And then in parentheses, I put in quotes script version. Script version is an ID of a particular string. So it'll go into the XML find a line that has an ID of script version, get its text, and then put that text into script version. That's how I can keep this thing um, where all the strings are over there. I can still reference them in you know, English strings that are hard-coded, but the actual contents can be localized and changeable very easily in the XML. So all three lines do that same thing. Six, seven. The next one is a line you've never seen before. Eight, connect event. Line, the eighth line in the script is connect event. Connect event is a standard, well, it's a, um, a scripts method, but remember you have the scripts object, so you don't need to specify it. But if you look in the documentation of your scripts, you'll find a method called connect event. And uh, its parameters, the first parameter is um, how you want to uh, confine the, the event itself. So in my case, I need to give it a uh, I'm going to be, what I want to connect is an event called onChild field name, which is a window event. Again, you can look in the documentation, you'll find window object, you look in events, you'll find onChild field name. Anytime WindowEyes goes to get a field name, it will fire this event. 
but it only fires it for the particular window that I specify in this first parameter. In the first parameter, I'm specifying client information dot overlap. Again, window eyes filled in the overlap, which is an object. It filled in the overlap for you because it knows what application was launched for this particular script. In my case, it's the display settings dialog. So it takes that overlap object, <coughs> gives it to me, I pass it to the connect event object, which says only fire this event if this object is the active window. Only if this overlap is the active window should you fire this event. So if I alt-tab away from display settings, this event will not fire. If I come back into display settings, that's my active overlap, this event will fire for my script. That's one way you can filter these events so that they only, you only get the events that you're interested in. Because I don't care about the field name for you know, Word or Notepad. I only care about the field name for the display settings dialog. So the second parameter is the event you're hooking, which in, it has to be in quotes, and is on child field name, and then a comma, and the final parameter, and there are more optional parameters, but I'm not going to get into that. The manual talks about all of them. But the final parameter is my on-child field name. That's the, the um, method or function, depending on the object that I'm hooking, the event that I'm hooking. That's what it will actually call. And if you look up the documentation on on-child field name, it does need to be a function. I don't remember if, if Aaron said that or if I said this. In VBScript, the difference between a function and a sub is a function has a return value. Uh, value. Sub does not have a return value. Well, on-child field name has to have a return value because it has to return back what the field name should be. Or, indicating to window eyes, I don't have a field name, do your normal functionality. So, that's how I actually connect to that event and tell window eyes what function to call when that event fires, assuming I'm the active window. So the function itself, if you go down yeah. the line, skip the blank line there, if you see line 10 is function my on-child field name. And again, if you looked up the documentation on on-child field name, you will see that when the event fires, it hands you a window object of the window that got focus. Um, I'm sorry, of the window that it's asking for a field name. So when window eyes tries to get a field name for a window, it fires this event and gives you, handily, a window object of that window it's trying to get. So what I need to do with this function is, first of all, I need to make sure that I'm in the trackball. So this, fun this fires only when my window is active, but it's going to fire for every control on my dialog. So even the OK button is going to fire this event. <coughs> so I need to make sure I'm on the track bar before I do what I do. So the next line just 11. says... If check if screen rest track bar window. So I have another function in my script further down called check if screen res track bar, and I pass it the same window object. That function is the one that verifies I'm really on the track bar. So that does the work to determine that I'm really on my trackbar. And we can show what that is. But that returns true if I'm really on the trackbar. So if I'm really on the trackbar, then let's do line 12. Well, if not, when, period. So here it just says if not, and this is a VB script negative that I always like that. So if not, win.parent. So I'm taking the window that, that is trying to get a field name for. In this case, it's the trackbar. Car wouldn't be on this line if it wasn't the trackbar. So I'm saying if the trackbar parent dot control of 1854 is nothing, then that means I'm um, on XP because 1854 was the control ID that I had for the word um, resolution. And I'm just verifying because here's the one where it's either 1854 or it's 1818. 
remember that was the text that I did. So I'm saying if I can't find a control of 1854, then I'm going to go um, get 1818. If I did find 1854, then I'm going to use 1854. This is just to check if I'm in Vista or XP. I could have done other mechanisms to determine that, but I just did that. So if not, so meaning if it's not is nothing, which means it is something, <laughs> double negative, not nothing, is something. So if it is something, then I just go down to the next line and I just set, on a VB script, the way you set a return value of a function is you use the function name and set it to your return value. So my function name was my on child field name. So I'm just saying my on child field name equals, and again, I'm taking the window, which is the trackbar, parent, and the reason I have to go to the parent is when I get a control ID, it only goes down. It can't find siblings um, or the control ID. And the trackbar and the resolution are sibling windows. Their, own, their, their parent is the same. So I have to go up to the parent of the trackbar to come down to get the resolution. And so I'm saying win.parent.control1854. So it's just finding that particular one.text. That's how I get the word resolution. So I'm setting it equal to resolution, and then I add a space, and then I do another ampersand, and then I say win.parent.control1814.text, which is the pixel information. So I'm just building a string, resolution 1440 by 900 pixels in my case. That's all I did. That's right. <laughs> and then, of course, the else statement of this was for the um, XP case. So if I wasn't in Vista, then I just do the exact same string um, line, except I only use um, the control ID of 1818 instead of 1854. So it's really pretty simple that. And then I have another else down there after I set the string, which is the else of whether or not I'm even on the track bar. If I'm not on the track bar, I set my on child field name, which is my function name, equal to VB null. And that tells window eyes, hey, I didn't do anything, you do your normal processing. If it comes back with anything other than VB null, then window eyes will just use whatever you passed it. Now I could have passed it an empty string, which would have done nothing. Or in my case now, I'm actually giving it the string. And then I just do an end if on that big gabby, and then I do an end function. So that's all my event does. It just verifies I'm on the trackbar, and then builds the string that I want, and returns it or returns VB null if I'm not on the track bar. Is that pretty clear? I think it is. It is to me anyway. And then the, the last part there on line 23 is another function, which is the function I referenced before, check if screen res track bar, and it takes a parameter of win, so it's got a window object coming in. And the first thing I just do is, um, I, set, I, I assume it's false, so the next line is check if screen res track bar equals false. He's guilty until innocent. And then I say if win.control.id equals 1808, which was the ID for that trackbar. Then I just do one more check. Um, I just, uh, even though the control ID is 1808, I'm paranoid. I then do one more check and I check the window overlaps title. So I'm checking the title bar to make sure it's either display settings for Vista or display properties, I think it is, for XP. If it's one of those two titles on my dialog title bar, then I know I'm where I want to be. And notice those two strings are coming from my XML file. So if I'm using the Polish version of Windows, that would be localized to Polish version, and it would just work there as well. And if all that's true, I set check if res trackbar is true, and then I return on a dodge. 
And that's really all there is to this function. That's what makes this come to life. So you can see 30 lines, and it probably didn't even need to be that long, uh, works with all operating systems, makes this guy just speak. You guys brain dead, or are you keeping up? <laughs> it's tough to go over somebody else's code, I know. Um, but I think you, you certainly can take these back with you if you want to play with them. But let's take a look at the XML for Control Panel 3. So in your editor, or wherever you're at, go ahead and launch another notepad or whatever. Open up Control Panel 3.xml. This is only 16 lines. It's it's real XML code. You need to use the formatting of XML, which is, is pretty strict in some cases. It's much more strict than VBScript is. I'm just going to go through the syntax of this. And again, all I did was define a string section. I didn't define any dialogues or anything like that. The very first line of your XML file must have, well, it can be that XML string, whatever that's not. Yeah, so the first line of your, your XML file should be in less than and greater than, which is XML terminology, we script UI. That just tells Windowize this is a Windowize script UI XML file. That has to be there or Windowize will not recognize this XML file. So that's the first line. It doesn't have to be physically the first line, but it needs to be the first line of code, I guess. Um, the second line, in my case, within an XML file, you can have a few different... Uh, what do you call these sections? Sections, groups. Sure. Sections, groups. One of the sections is options, and so I, again, using XML terminology, I open the section with less than options greater than. Then within that section, I have language order is an option within options. Language order is what determines the order that the scripts load. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is how it determines. Uh, helps Windowize figure out what order it should try to look for the language. And real quickly, it says we comma OS comma 409, which says use the Windowize language, whatever it is running as, first. If you find it, fine, use it, and you're done. If you don't, go to the OS, find out what language it's running as, look for that. If you find it, good, you're done. If not, all else fails, use 409, which is US English. And it will go find that in the XML file and use it. So then you use the less than slash language order. That's the ending, the, the tag for language order. And then there's a slash options, which is the end for the options tag. So that options is, yeah, you don't have to do options because actually that's the default anyway, even if you didn't specify it. Then I have another tag called language. And uh, here's where you set all the different languages. So if I had 20 languages, I would have 20 different language tags. And in my case, the ID is 409, which is US English. We, we give you a link in the uh, XML file, or rather in our CHM file, that points to all the different languages and what their IDs are. You could also say US dash, no, EN dash US, if you wanted to, English US. You can also use the actual string text that the XML file would use as well. Well, 409 is the, uh, the hex value for that as well. And then within the language tag, you have a strings tag, so it opens up with strings. And then you can define all your string elements. So I have a string with an ID, and then I give it the actual text, and I end the string tag. And I just do that over and over and over for all the strings I have. So if I were to localize this, I would take the language tag from beginning to end, copy it, 
paste it back in, change the ID to mine, go to all of the actual the strings themselves, which Notepad very conveniently puts in bold black, and I could just change all that text, and I'm done. But that's where it's actually pulling these strings from. I could have easily hard-coded these in my VBS file, but I decided to put them here. All right, well, let's complicate our uh, script even more and offer an option. Let's pretend that the display settings didn't allow me to tab to the track bar. So what I'm going to do is our next script that I created, what I did was I created a hotkey that when I press, it would automatically go to the track bar, get all of its options, bring up a list box, put all of those options in that list box, and allow me to select the resolution I want from that list box. When I hit enter, it'll go back into the track bar, set it to that option, and boom, my, my track bar is set to the right resolution. So that's a good case of where the UI doesn't allow you to do it, so let's do it ourselves. So what we need to do is we need to um, unload control panel three, because we don't want both control panel three and control panel four associated. So go back to display settings, make sure that's the active window, pop up windowize, go to our um, script manager dialog, make sure control panel three is highlighted, and do unload. It'll say, are you sure? You say yes. And with the script manager dialog still up, go ahead and load control panel four. Control panel four this time. This is the next generation. And while you've got that associated, while your script manager is still up, notice what I did with help and options. If you do Alt H with Control Panel Four selected, H help information H. This simply enhances the experience. This uses the GW Toolkit to display the script help options, which gives me help information. It allows me to change my hotkey. It allows me to check for updates on Script Central, which of course doesn't work because it's not up on Script Central. But this is, uh, so if I tab around, I tab down. Default hotkey, control shift, windows L, read only. And you find, when we look through the script um, code, you're going to find that I didn't hard code control shift, windows L. It actually uses an option that the user can define. I can tab down. I can hit change hotkey button and it will then say, well, press the key you want. I'll press the key I want, boom. That script is automatically changed to that hotkey. So all of our scripts that use hotkeys uses this dialog. Or if you have a script that has multiple hotkeys, then it uses a similar dialog, but it actually uses kind of a hotkey manager dialog that allows me to define all of my hotkeys and give a description of what all these individual hotkeys do as well. But the bottom line is it's consistent and the scripts are using those, so once you know how to use one, you can easily use the other. But this is where a user would go and change their script hotkey. So like the Amid, which was Control-Shift-Q, you would just go into its help and options and you'll see a similar dialog. You go down, change hotkey, and boof, it changed. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to show you that. So we're gonna go, let's just go back into Display Settings dialog. And it said Control-Shift-Windows-L, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, Control-Shift-Windows-L. So while Display Settings is active, do Control-Shift-Windows-L. 
visually I see this track bar moving. One generic PMP monitor on video. So this should pop up a dialogue with the list box showing you all of your resolutions you support, highlighting the one that was currently active, allowing you to arrow through what you want. There's a set button and then a close button. Yes, sir. Well, my resolutions are the same. They're all 1024 by 768. Is that uh, a Vista thing, a script thing? Well, I'm in Vista here. What if you escape, try it again? Does it still do it? Or you have more than one, I assume. Should it? it worked on mine. That time, it, that well, time I changed it. Yeah. Now they went, yeah, I actually, before I, this time I saw it actually move the track bar, before it didn't move the track bar. So it's like, it's, it's, yeah, there. Yeah. it's like you didn't oh. activate the first time. He's running Zoom text too, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> These half blind guys trying to be crazy. Um, yeah, so then you can just move it around. I don't uh, expect you to change your screen resolution, but you could just up and down arrow, whatever, hit enter, or tab to set and hit enter, and it would change it. But let's take a look at how this actually worked. And actually, even before I wrote the code for this, I used a mead. And if we had a little bit more time, I would, I would show you what I did. But I actually used a mead. Um, I would have the um, focus, put focus on the track bar. I would pop up the mead window with Control shift q And then I did something like, I used the at sign that would, remember how if you start a line with that, it puts activation back to the window that had activation before me came up. And then I said keyboard.insert key, which um, is, a, is a method that sends, simulates keys, space vk underscore home, which sends a home character to, that, to the track bar. So I just basically simulated hitting home on the keyboard. Comma zero, which uh, means no modifiers, so there's, that's just the parameters for it. Then I did colon for i equals, um, Focus window dot control dot minimum to focus window dot control dot maximum colon print uh, it, it print the I found the window and I printed it as I did it and then I faked another right arrow key and I just went all the way through that so basically using a mead I caused it to go back into the track bar do a home print the pixel resolution send a right arrow key print the pixel resolution send a right arrow key print the pixel resolution all the way to the maximum of the track bar and all those came out in the mead window. I did that all through a mean. And that's how I kind of played with it to figure out that I could do that. The reason I had to simulate keystrokes is again I used a mead and I can talk to that track bar direct. I can get the minimum, I can get the maximum, I can get the current setting of this track bar and I can set the current setting. Let's say it's on 5 of 10. I could set it 4 and the track bar moved to 4. The problem is the pixel information, the static text down there didn't change because the dialog didn't realize I changed the track bar from underneath it, the dialog code didn't run to actually update the static text of the pixel size. So even though my script could, could change programmatically the, the track bar, the, the pixel position or pixel resolution wasn't changing. So I couldn't just change the control directly. I had to simulate keystrokes. And so that's what my script does. It actually simulates keystrokes to do a home, to do a right arrow, right arrow, right arrow, to get that pixel resolution to change. Now, if it, let's say that it didn't even take focus, then I may have to take the mouse and actually do some clicking or whatever, you know, whatever sighted user had to do to this thing to do it. I assume that it actually took keystrokes, so I, that's how I actually got it out. So let's take a look at the code. What you So again, the Which easiest way is bring up the script manager and do edit. Hi, see you. Now this turns into how many lines now? Oh, 
168 lines. So we've gone up a little bit in size, but it's still not that bad, and we're going to kind of rip through this in the next 15 minutes and then call it a day. Um, so the first line is very similar. It just sets up the path to my XML, and then now it's Control Panel 4, which actually brings up a good point. When you're creating scripts, you want to make sure that your package, your script, um, XML file that you have, INI files are all called the same, just so that you're assured that they're not going to collide with somebody else. So I called my XML Control Panel 4.XML. And you're going to find down, if you go down a couple more lines, you see I set up an INI variable called um, Control Panel INI. I set that to control information dot script path and add to it backslash control panel dot, uh, I should have said control panel 4, didn't I? My bad. Dot INI. Because that's where I'm going to store the hotkey that the user can define. So I created an INI, again in my user's default directory, called the name of my script, or it should have been called the name of my script, and um, that's where the user hotkey is going to be defined. So four. four, I just I'm setting up some global variables that I'm going to be using that I won't actually get into, but I Five, get a bunch six, of variables at the top. Nine. One of the nice things about well, one of the good things and bad things of VBScript is you can use a variable name without defining it at first. So I can I can immediately use a variable name without doing a dim on it. The the downside of that is is that if I mistype that variable name, then VBScript is happily going to use it. And the problem is I'm going to think it's using my correctly spelled variable, but in fact it's using a misspelled version and it's totally something different or completely different than what I had imagined. So VBScript actually gives you a, a, a thing that you can put up at the top called option explicit. If you start your script with option space explicit, that means VBScript will never let you use a variable that's not been dimensioned first, that's been defined first. So that's probably a good thing to do because if you do make a typo, you'd rather get a script error than you would have it run off and actually use the wrong variable that you're thinking it's using. So, so it's a good idea to use the option explicit and define all your variables explicitly, either global or in your, in your functions or subs or however you're doing it. So after all my dimensions, you'll see ten. lines 10 through 12, just do the same script uh, control information for the script version, script description, script help, help all those are done there. None of that has changed so far. Then the next line, the uh, line 14, Here's a new line that was added, and that's where I'm actually registering the hotkey. And I do this all in one line, mainly because I pulled this from another script that probably pulled it from another script that pulled it from another script. You don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. I don't remember the syntax of this all the time. I'll go and pull a script that I know, oh, I know that script does this functionality, and I'll go rip its line out of there. And that's what I did for this. Here's where it registers the hotkey. It's very similar to what um, Aaron did for your Hello World example, only it's a little bit more advanced still says set space register hotkey. I've got to set it to a variable or I will lose my hotkey immediately. Equals keyboard.register hotkey, so far the same. Now in parentheses, instead of hard coding the string control shift windows L, meaning the user couldn't change it without modifying my script, I actually go off to the INI file and pull the current setting from the INI file. We have an object called INI file, so right after register hotkey left parentheses, You'll see INI file, which is an object, and you can go look in the documentation windowized, and you can see that the first parameter is, uh, well, that's, yeah, so the first parameter, the only parameter of this is the INI file. So I say INI file, and then in the parentheses, I give it the path of my INI file. Well, I'm just using the variable that I defined up at the top of my path. So that's where I give the INI file object the path of my INI. 
and it has a method called text. So I did all of that dot text, and the text method takes three parameters. It takes the section name, it takes the key name, and it takes a default parameter if that option isn't in the INI file. So if you look at dot text, you'll see left parentheses in quotes hotkeys, comma, that's the first parameter. Second parameter is pop-up, so it's gonna look for a hotkey section in my INI. It's gonna look for a pop-up line in the hotkey section. And if it doesn't find it, it's gonna return my third parameter, which is Control-Shift-Windows-L, which is hard-coded in my script, and that's by design, and it should be that way. So if it doesn't find it, it will use that. And just in case you're thinking, what happens if I'm running this in Poland? Doesn't matter, Windowize always knows how to read the English name of a hotkey. So you should always define it as English in your hotkey, in, uh, whenever you're hard-coding a string inside of a script. But it's only going to use this if it didn't find it in my INI file. So once the user defines it, it will be in that INI file, and it will always use it from there, from then on. So that, that's the first parameter of my register hotkey, is that whole INI business, which is huge. And then comma, the... Um, yeah, then the, it's the... Um, the function that I wanted to call when the hotkey is pressed, which is create dialog. This is what's going to pop up my dialog. And the final parameter, which Aaron did not use, this is what actually defines this hotkey to only be relevant while my dialog is active. And the third parameter, which is optional, is a process of the window that you want to be active if for the hotkey to be successful. So I passed in client information.application process. So again, the application that launched my script, if that is the active process, this hotkey will fire. If that is not the active process, the script will not see that hotkey and Windowize will completely ignore that key press. So that, that's what the Hello World could have done so that it only did it inside Notepad as opposed to being global for Control-Shift-1 that he did there. So that's a big honking line, but that, it's, it does quite a bit. It pulls it from the INI, tells it to define it to the, that particular dialogue only, and blah, blah, blah. Then the next line... Connect event. It does connect event, which we did on before on, on, on child field name. Now I'm actually doing it on another object called on state change for shared objects. You'll look in the help manual and you'll find that there is an object called shared objects. Shared objects allows me to share objects from one script to another. The toolkit, that's all its job is, is sharing objects. It just creates all these cool objects, shares them to the outside world, and you can get access to them. But to get access to them, you have to use the, um, well, to, to do it correctly, you should use this particular event on state change, which will fire when new shared objects become available, and when shared objects go away, it will fire this event. So that way my script could look for the particular event that I, or particular object in toolkit that I want, and when it fires this event, I can say, hey, is that the one I want? Yes, it is. Okay, now I can do my thing. So I'm just hooking on state change, which will fire all the event, all the shared objects that come and go. And I should say that any shared object that's already shared, because the toolkit's going to be running by the time I get into my dialog that's going to run my script. The toolkit's already running. So you might say, well, it wouldn't fire because nothing's coming and going. When you hook this, it will immediately fire on every shared object that's already shared. So my script will immediately see every shared object that's already out there when I hook this event. And then from then on, I'll see new ones that come and go as they come and go. So I can immediately determine that. Um, because if the toolkit's not there, I want to still run, but I want to I handle it differently. Uh, 
I can't use the shared objects if they're not there, but I don't want to cripple the script. And so that's why I'm looking for them to come and go. 16. You missed it all, so. I heard everybody who's anybody is here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then the next line after a shared object is I just do a connect event on the uh, on child field name, which is the stuff we did before. So that's nothing new. And then there's a function down there called my on child field name, which again is not new. That does what it did before. That just makes it work if you were to tap down to it. But the uh, cool stuff, and then there's the same check if res track bar, that's still there. The cool new stuff though is, well, that's not so cool. The next function on line 41 is a function called view help. I don't think I mentioned this. Up at the top, I'm gonna just zip up there. Where I did client information script help, um, that actually did change from the previous version. The script help, if you give it a string, first thing Window Eyes does with that string is it goes and looks in your script to see if there's a function with that same name. If there's a function with that name, it will actually call that function and assume it's going to be responsible for displaying its own help. If it doesn't find a function, it just brings up a message box and displays that string. Well, what I did was I switched that here. I actually set script help equal to, in quotes, view help which is a function or a sub that I've defined down further on in my script um, on line 41, is a sub called view help. And that's responsible for actually displaying my help. And that gets a little bit involved, but that's where I actually use the shared object from the toolkit. So the first thing it does is says, if shared objects, and then in parentheses and quotes, com.jwmicro.toolkit.standardhelp dialog. And the reason we do this, this big, long, ugly name, is we want to make sure it's unique. We want to make sure when we share an object, we have to share it by a name, by a string. We want to make sure that we don't collide with somebody else's shared object. So what's unique to GW Micro? Well, our domain is unique. So we say com.gwmicro. Nobody else owns gwmicro.com except us. So we're guaranteed that's unique. So everything that we share will start with com.gwmicro. And then it came from the GW Toolkit script, so we have .gw Toolkit. And then the actual name of the shared object is Standard Help Dialog. That's the real root of it. So that whole big long thing is just a way to make sure it's unique. It didn't have to be that long. It could have been A, but we probably would have collided with somebody else. And there's other parameters that say how long it should wait trying to look for that object or whatever. But basically it's saying if it's, if it's there, it, rather if it's not there, then I just want to display a message box for help. But if it is there, then I set up all the parameters for it and let GW Toolkit do the actual help for me. I supply it the default hotkey, I give it the INI file so that if it does change, it'll do it, and blah, blah, blah. We don't have enough time to go through all that. I'll let you guys kind of look through that. But it's very simple in what it does. And if you look at the help for the GW Toolkit, it has a CHM file just like the Window Eye Scripting Manual does only it's just talking about its shared objects that it provides. But it's laid out the exact same way. All the objects are alphabetical. Within that, you have methods, properties, and events for all those different things. I don't think any of them have events. But. So it's all documented very well within that that you can deal with. Graphic, left, left. Um, and then again, the same thing for check for updates, which is another subroutine that's up there that actually looks to see if there are updates when the script launches. It just basically checks to see if there are updates. Again, it uses the shared object from the toolkit to do this. So again, it looks for the shared object and sets up parameters. But the toolkit actually does the checking. The toolkit actually is responsible for going off to our server, getting the XML, getting the version of the script, comparing the version with my version, and displaying a dialog if there's something newer and letting the user download it if it's there. 
So I did it in what, maybe 10 lines of code because the toolkit took care of the details. It's not that it's, it's overly complicated and you couldn't have done it yourself, it's just why we create the wheel every time. It's a very common function, so we put it in the toolkit. You have the source code if you want to see what it is. But the real heart of it yeah. that I wanted to kind of get into that uh, we're again Sign, running out yeah. of time yeah. is the create dialog function, which is what the hotkey will call when the hotkey is pressed. And this just goes in and again, make sure that I'm in the correct dialog, does some stuff, and then the real key of this that you'll want to actually check out when you have some more time is where it actually pops up the dialog. But before I pop up the dialog, the first thing I do is I do all that business I talked about that I did in the mead. I, put, I save where the current focus is in the dialog. I set focus to the track bar. I send a home to the track bar. I get the pixel positions. I send a right arrow, get the pixel positions, keep sending it until I'm at the maximum of the track bar. Then I set the track bar back to where it was. I set focus back to where it was. And then we go off and um, bring up the dialog with all that data. So visually, I actually see the track bar going ding, 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 ding and the pixel positions and everything are changing. But then it restores the focus, it restores the index of the track bar. All that's done within that sub that I'm just going to leave for an exercise that maybe you can take a look at. Yeah. But what does it is there's one function inside that um, sub called dialog, which again is a method of application. And so it says dialog space my XML, which is a variable that has the entire path of my XML, and then comma, and then I give it the um, ID that I gave to my particular dialog, which is called resolution. So if I look in the XML, which we will in a little bit, I'll see a dialog section called resolution. And then I have to give it a callback, a dialog proc callback. If you've ever programmed a dialog in Windows before, it's very, very similar to that. You have the same dialog proc that you would if you were creating a Windows application. The same type of things come back to that dialog proc. You'll get an object to the thing, you'll get an event, you'll get an ID, you'll get a control, all that comes back to your dialog proc. And there's some other optional parameters and things like that that we've supplied there. And your dialog can be modal, which means your script can stop until the dialog is done, or it can be non-modal, which means your code of your script will just continue on, and then when the script go, when the dialog goes away, so be it, because your dialog proc is really responsible for doing all this. I made it modal, and I had a return value come back from my dialog so that when the dialog went away, I looked to see if I am to set the track bar, and if I am, I set it. But then there's the dialog proc, which does all the work down there. And again, you get the parameter yeah. of the dialog proc, and it just looks to see if you've changed something in the list box, if you've clicked on the set button, or you've clicked on the close button, or whatever you want to be able to do. It populates, when the dialog is created, it populates the list box with the entries that we got before we popped up the dialog. All that is in there. And again, I just don't have time to go through all of that stuff for you. It's not complicated at all. You just have to take it line by line, and you'll see how it actually populates the list box and does all that. Yeah. And then uh, on close, if you click on the set button, rather, it sets my global return value and uh, just closes the dialog and gets out of dodge. And then I have a function after the, the dialog proc that just actually sets the index of the track bar. So I just pass in an index, it's, it goes down to the track bar and sets the focus down to that by setting a home and sending a right arrow key so many times until I get to the correct settings so that the pixel settings is also set. But let's just quickly look at the XML of that and then we're done and there is some food back there. So yeah. All this will be worth it. Oh, menu closed. Combo. So I'm going to just quickly open up open. control panel 4.xml. Period. XML. 
This is identical to the previous control panel 3.xml. It's just that um, I still have that string section. It's just Two. added a new section. Inside my language section, I have a dialogue section now. So my strings are still there, my options section is still there, but in the language, I now have a dialogue. And I can have multiple dialogues within my language section. If my script needs 20 dialogues, I'll have 20 dialogue sections in my language. They'll all have unique IDs so that I can bring them up individually. And um, remember I told you with the mead, I could have passed in this ID and popped up the same dialogue inside of a mead just by specifying the XML and the ID within that. Um, but in the dialogue section, it specifies the ID. It says whether or not I want a system menu. It says whether or not I want a minimize button, whether or not I want the dialogue to be modal. There's all sorts of options. And again, the manual goes through and does all of that. What the title bar should be for my dialogue, which is screen resolution shortcut, what I put in there. And then the nice, here's how you actually define these dialogues. Um, within the dialogue, you can actually set up groups. And the groups can be horizontal or vertical. And everything within that group will be that orientation. But you can have groups within groups within groups within groups. And so in my case, I have this outer group, which is a vertical group. Within that, within that first group, I have a list box. And that's my list box that I gave the information about. After the list box, I have another group that I set horizontal. And I have two buttons within that. So the, the reason I have that is when my dialog comes up, I see the list box. And directly underneath that, vertically under my list box, I have two horizontal buttons. If I didn't have the two groups, and I just had one group vertical with my list box and two buttons, I would have seen a list box, under that a button, under that a button. But because I set the other one, it automatically put them. And it automatically centers them. I can tell it to be left justified, right justified, centered. I can make things be auto-sized. It just automatically sets things to look good. So I don't have to be sighted to be able to make, you know, to know that I have a good-looking dialogue when it comes up. That's the beauty of it. And the tab order is automatically set logically the way you would expect based on your groups and everything within it. So it'll just set tab order from top to bottom through your groups that you have. So you don't have to even set tab order in this. It's just going to do it. If the tab order is wrong, that means you defined it wrong within the XML. But I suggest you just take a look at the XML file. It's only what, from line 16 to 24, so it's not very long for that dialog. And it just defines the list box and those two buttons. But again, you can go look at the XML for progress indicator if you wanted to go look at that one, or any of the other scripts that we have, you can go look at that and see how it's actually done. So I really sped up on that one. I apologize. But I think you just need to go back and just kind of play with this, load these things, tweak them, look at the scripts that we've got, look at all the ones that are up there, look at the source code, tweak the source code, use me, play with it, and just deal with it. But there's no way we can go through all of this stuff in four hours and get you going on it. But I hope that that will at least get you interested and realize the potential of what these scripts can actually do, because it, it's enormous of what you can do with these. Any questions? Are you ready for food? With the HTML files, can you, uh, I, I open mine with Notepad, but are there editors that are better to use for the XML files? They're just text, so your favorite text editor is the best editor to use. There's no, uh, I mean, there are XML editors out there that are specific to XML, but I've never found one that, that gave me anything other than what my pattern of Pat++ already gives me. So it's really the learning of the syntax. The important thing with XML files is you turn on your punctuation so that you hear the less thans, the slashes, the greater thans, and things like that. Because that, that's what makes or, break, makes or breaks XML. And XML is also case sensitive. So unlike your VBS script that doesn't really care about case most of the time, XML is very strict on case. 
So it'd be easier to do with the braille display. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's everything is very picky. You leave off a little quote, or you leave off whatever, and it will whine about it. Or if you whatever your idea is for your string, it has to be matched the case sensitive. Or if you, you know, like my, I have a what my list box ID is uh, LST underscore resolutions all lowercase has to match that when I use that inside the VBS script. So we say that the VB script isn't case sensitive, but if you're referencing an ID inside of an XML file, that part is case sensitive. So there are some things in VB script that are case sensitive, but the actual VB script itself, it's it, you know, its statements, its functions, and things like that, those aren't case sensitive, but, but other parts are. That concludes this edition of Main Menu. We trust you've enjoyed the program. On behalf of Jeff Bishop and the entire Main Menu team, I'm Jamie Pauls wishing you and yours a great week.